the moment of my death was the most peaceful experience of my life. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, where we have conversations with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, athletes, best-selling authors who are using their impact moment to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. I am your host, Mike Flynn, and each week our guest is part of a series such as Mindset, Leadership, Purpose, and we just concluded an incredibly powerful series on belief. Now, this series is all about a warrior's heart. So over the course of the next few weeks, we will take time learning from some of America's greatest warrior leaders and how they are using their experience to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. I think this is a perfect series to follow up belief because each guest in this series willingly volunteered to place themselves in situations where they had to develop the skills necessary not only to survive, but also to achieve their objectives. And they did so in the midst of many obstacles and challenges. And more importantly, each one faced incredible amounts of adversity. And now they are taking those lessons of leadership and humility and resiliency and have a new mission to impart those lessons to the world. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes. And now let's learn a little bit more about this week's guest in the Warriors Heart series. Major Joshua Montz is the author of The Beauty of a Darker Soul, a book dedicated to helping people overcome emotionally traumatic experiences. A graduate of West Point, Josh served as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army for nearly a decade and is the recipient of the Purple Heart and Bronze Star with Valor. He is a highly sought-after speaker on the topic of emotional trauma, having shared his message at TEDx, Got Your Six, and hundreds of other events. Joss was serving as a platoon leader in the 1st Cavalry Division in Iraq when he was shot and killed by an enemy sniper. The bullet first severed the aorta of one of his men before ricocheting into Josh's leg and severing his femoral artery. He went on to flatline for 15 minutes before being revived by the medical team and he retains full recollection of the events. Physically, Josh made a complete and total recovery and continued to excel in his career, but internally, he was collapsing. He'd soon learn and come to understand that his near-death experience would pale in comparison to the decade-long emotional struggle he would endure as he sought to find meaning in a second life. So we go deep in this episode with Josh to talk all about what he's doing now and how he is taking his lessons and teaching them to others. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact with this inspirational conversation with Josh Montz. Josh Montz, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you. It's uh, It's been a, a little while in the works, and we're honored to have you on the show. Hey, it's awesome to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I always like to get a little bit of background about my guests and and uh, how they grew up because it really how they grew up kind of is the beginning of how they are shaped to become right. And so before we dive into your story, that is uh, the Darker Soul LLC and your upcoming book, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your family and what it was like growing up in the Mont's household. <laughs> sure, yeah, it, it was. Um, you know, I, I grew up in. Uh, a small town in Pennsylvania, kind of like the all-American boy, always always out playing sports and dedicated to school and all that stuff. Uh, but really, two major influences in my life 
growing up uh, that, that lasted really through high school. First, my, my father died when I was seven years old. Oh, wow. Um, and, and my my mother's probably, she's the strongest woman I know. I mean, uh, but she remarried a couple years later to my uh, stepfather. And uh, he was a police officer. He was also a former infantry officer. Uh, he still does work with the attorney general's office in Pennsylvania today. And from that point forward, I grew up in a family of military and police. Hmm. You know, he had just had a, 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 an incredible influence on my life. Moving into to high school, I met the second biggest influence uh, of that time. And that was a gentleman named Sergeant Major Doug Vanderpool, who was a retired special forces sergeant major uh, who was running counter drug operations down in South America at the height <laughs> of the drug war. Oh, wow. And this guy literally retires from the special forces. Um, it goes to this small town in, in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, and takes over a junior ROTC program in high school. Whoa. Right? So he, he would be landing schnook helicopters in the football field, right? And taking the, the, the little cadets off to field training exercises at local National Guard bases. You know, we, we would actually have college universities hopping onto our training because they couldn't normally do the stuff that he could pull off. So, you know, in all seriousness, he, he, he knew, um, he knew that I was already kind of committed to going into the military. Mm -hmm. uh, so he took me and a handful of other, other people under his wing and, and really started to, to mentor us in a deep way. Mm. And he's really the first person who really drove home the importance of appreciating foreign cultures, appreciating the capacity of human beings, wherever they come from. Uh, their willpower, uh, regardless of the resources, uh, to understand the importance of empathy and learning language and understanding cultural norms. Uh, you know, many people look at special operations and think they're exclusively a direct action force, like conducting raids. But uh, in truth, a, lo a lot of the work they do is in, in empowering other militaries and other countries to uh, lead their own countries, right? Mm -hmm. So, Building that rapport and, and training them, um, it, it just takes a great deal of empathy that I'd, I'd soon come to apply in Baghdad a couple years later. Yeah, that's 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 powerful. And there's so much there. I, I had no idea that you had been through such a traumatic situation early on in, in your childhood with losing your dad and then you know seeing your mom rise to the occasion in, right. in that loss and then being introduced to this new man that would be ultimately probably would be the the role model right for you to follow would when you were 7 did you know what was going on like that how did it resonate with you like when losing your dad yeah you know it's you don't really understand what's going on when you're that young yeah and it wasn't really discussed very much mm -hmm. you know i I mean, in comparison to what I know now about uh, how the grieving process typically works and, and the impacts of, of that kind of loss, uh, none of that registered with me back then, nor was it, uh, nor was it as, as um, kind of socially normal to talk through the grief process mm -hmm. or, or to, to be cognizant of those things, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was more, um, you're just kind of along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to have a stepfather that uh, was just a, a phenomenal human being mm -hmm. <laughs> who took on two young kids and and was a, a great father to us in every mm -hmm. sense of the word. Do you have a sibling? Yep, I, I've, I've actually got two. So okay. um, my, my one of my younger sisters is, is only two years younger than me. Uh, but my 
uh, other sister was born when I was a senior in high school, and, <laughs> and it was the first child that my stepfather and mom had together. Oh, wow, cool. So her name's Kendra. Awesome. She's It's hard to believe, but she's about 17 years old now. <laughs> <laughs> so. What are they all doing now? Obviously, Kendra's probably a junior in high school or something right now. Yeah, Kendra is Kendra's getting ready to go to college, uh, so she's going through that that phase of what she wants to do. And, and she's just going to do phenomenal things. I mean, she is, she is one of the kindest, most empathic, uh, children that I've ever encountered. Um, and, and just highly intelligent. So I'm looking forward to see what, what happens with her. Um, and then my, my father's still doing, uh, some detective work, uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. Um, so, and, and just really kind of trying to enjoy life at this point, which yeah. I think is well-deserved. Yeah. And your younger sister lives in in Pennsylvania also? Yeah, she's in Pennsylvania as well. Cool. Awesome. So. Awesome. So your dad, your stepfather was uh, ex-military and, and police and still doing detective work. Prior to him entering your life, did you ever dream of being a soldier? No. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, it's ironic. I was just talking about this uh, to a friend the other day, but, I, you know. Did you even know what the concept was no. until that point? Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, my life, fundamentally different, like drastically different now, uh, versus what it would, I, I can't even imagine what, uh, and, and it's not that one would be better than the other. Uh, but I, I can't imagine what, how different my life would be, mm-hmm. um, if the circumstances were, were different that young. Yeah. But I, I mean, the influence that that had by the time I was 12 years old, you know, I, I remember this conversation very clearly with my stepfather. I, I, I was saying, you know, I, I want to be a, I want to be a great student. I want to be an athlete and I want to go in the military. You know, how do I figure this out? And that's when he told me, you know, you can go to West Point and do all three of those. Mm. And mm. from that moment on, I was latched onto the concept and mm. never let go of it. Yeah. And so then at which point did, so Vanderpool entered in high school and yep. continued to curate, cur- curate that curiosity and nurture that and de- help develop you and prepare you right for, right. for West Point. So you, at what point, how old were you when you s- decided I'm going to West Point? Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, the Academy is you, you have to start applying by the time you're a sophomore in high school. Okay. And I mean, you've got to be locked onto it if, yeah. if you, if you got a prayer getting in. Um, so really from the time I set foot in high school, I was prepping for that. Hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not just looking for the academic genius. They're looking for a comprehensive person mm-hmm. uh, who demonstrates leadership abilities in a lot of different walks of life, mm. you know, a diverse amount of skill sets. So it, it was, you know, it, it's like so many things came into play, like I, aside from uh, the sports teams I was on and and the leadership role that I had in that junior ROTC program, you know, mm-hmm. even when I was a kid, I was leading 200 people, <laughs> you know, um, under Doug's mentorship, Doug Vanderbilt's mentorship. But, you know, to broaden that even a little bit more, you know, one of the greatest pastimes with my stepfather is flying. Hmm. Uh, in his spare time, he was a he was a pilot and a flight instructor. So I had my pilot's license by the time I was 17 years old. Wow. You know, I'd be the. I'd be the guy taking girls up for dates on in a Cessna 150 and you know, instead of going to the movies, which is kind of dangerous sometimes, especially when you're that young. But um, it, it was no, it, it was great. Even even flying, like my dad was a phenomenal instructor. I, you know, I was he just drilled drilled me so hard, uh, uh, just as he does all of his students, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the habits that he instilled with me back then. 
even though I got away from flying for almost a decade, when mm -hmm. I hopped back in the cockpit with an instructor, those habits were still there. Yeah. Uh, to the point yeah. where the instructor asked, like, who taught you how to fly? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it was my stepdad. He's pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. You know, it takes, it takes a high degree of confidence to declare and to decide that you're going to do anything, let alone uh, go to, to West Point, decide you're going to go to West Point and... Uh, and apply beginning when you're a sophomore in high school and you don't know anything, you, you're barely getting started. Obviously, that confidence was something that was instilled in you from your your stepfather is, is what I'm I'm getting. What? How did he do that? What If you had to look back and say, this man did X, Y, and Z to build my confidence and to, and to teach me to believe in my own capabilities, what? How would, how would you answer that? I would say that my parents, both of them, mm. um, first of all, they never once pushed me to do anything. Mm. Uh, they had this way of uh, just demonstrate. I, I don't know. For 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 some reason, I was. I'm, I'm not sure why I was always just this straight arrow, laser focused uh, kid. You know, which I which I was all, all through high school, all through college. Um, I'm not necessarily that way now, but back then, you know, I, I, I can't necessarily explain why I was like that. I mean, maybe it just kind of rubbed off from my stepfather's personality, mm -hmm. uh, and, and his work, uh, on the police force, but w one, they, they definitely allowed me to fail. Um, mm -hmm. they, they trusted me deeply, like when I, and I, I kind of earned and retained that trust at the same time. So when I was 16 years old, yeah, as soon as I got my driver's license, I, I'd be driving around the entire county of Northumberland, mm. Pennsylvania at four in the morning, mm. picking up other kids who couldn't drive yet to take them to the YMCA and train for this um, competition with oh, wow. the junior RTC program. You know, and then I'd be going to wrestling practice for three hours that night, you know, and then doing homework. So it, it, that was part of it. It was, it was in, a, in part the the passion that he had for serving in the infantry, right? Mm -hmm. The stories that he had, uh, the, the, the stories the other family members had, and, and all of that kind of contributed just to this, this value set that kind of kept me moving in that mm -hmm. direction. Mm -hmm. When I got a little bit older, um, towards later in high school, he, he actually allowed me to start riding along with him uh, sometimes, mm -hmm. it, it, actually on the job in, mm -hmm. in police work. And that made a substantial impact on me too. And it really taught me a different side of him. Yeah. You know, he's a pretty big intimidating guy. You know, he's, he's six, four, six, five, two fifty, mostly muscle. Damn. And he has the reputation of never once having lost a fight in a 25 year police career <laughs> and, and usually ending those fights within 30 seconds or less. Yeah. Uh, so wow. I had this impression that he was this, you know, kind of badass go get him kind of, kind of guy. Um, but when I saw him in action in the police force, uh, that was another big lesson of, of empathy and the mm. importance of empathy. You know, he, he genuinely sought to resolve situations at the lowest possible level. And the level of understanding and empathy he displayed towards people was able to diffuse uh, potentially damaging situations very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I, and I just saw that repeatedly. So his... Uh, just direct exposure or my direct exposure to that coupled with uh, the same type of messaging from this, this special forces sergeant major 
you know, had a, just a, a, a profound impact on uh, who I was, the leader that I would become and what I was kind of being molded into. Mm-hmm. And, and all of it, all of it came into play in a very big way uh, in Baghdad a couple years later. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the concept of self-efficacy? So, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So, so Dr. Albert Bandura, you know, he came up with this whole concept of self, self-efficacy. Uh, and, you know, you just outlined two of the key uh, tenets of the theory, which are, one, you do things yourself. And, you know, self-efficacy is basically a way to build confidence. And you do that by, one, doing things that you yourself are unfamiliar with. And then when you approach them and do them successfully, you build your confidence, obviously, right? But then even when you do things that you're not, uh, you, you don't complete successfully the first time, you make note of the skills that you need to develop in order to go back and complete it successfully the next time. So you go and you do that. This One of the other key components of the, the theory is seeing other people do things successfully, like normalizing right, right, right. things, right? And so that it doesn't become this, this, um, this thing that seems like super heroic or something or, or right. super out of your league. And, and not only did you do things that helped build your confidence in terms of, of, uh, you know, your activities and growing up in high school and, and whatever, but also witnessing your stepfather and, uh, staff sergeant Vanderpool doing other things instilled confidence in you. And, and I can't, I, I love talking about this stuff because, Watching other people do things that you think you're not capable of doing is the fastest way to build confidence, I believe. Right. Yeah. You know, we we are absolutely shaped by our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would not be who I am today without the influences in my life. Yeah. You know, uh, and frankly, both positive and negative influences. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you learn from all of them. Yeah. But I, I've just been so fortunate. Uh, not only for my stepfather and my family, not only for uh, Doug Vanderpool and and everyone at West Point. Every, I, I mean, I, I've had so many profound influences uh, that have shaped me at every phase of my career that, you know, I, I, I only hope to, to kind of give back in the same way and do the same, mm-hmm. you know, just, just by kind of the way we function and operate on a daily basis, yeah. you know? So you enter West Point in uh in 2001 that's correct 2001 and you graduated in 05 and you pretty much know you're you're gonna head into battle right that's um it it was actually you know we're our class is considered to be the class of 9-11 yeah because we were freshmen when 9-11 happened just 50 miles away Mm. you know west west point's only about 50 miles north of new york city right on the hudson river so let's pause there for a second because i want to like this is a mindset thing, right? Mm-hmm. So when you went into uh, when you were applying to West Point, and even when you started, nine eleven hadn't happened yet, right? Right, correct. And so you have, I'd love for you to take us through that process of okay, your mindset going into nine eleven, and then graduating and going to fight a war. I sure. mean, like, what was that journey? Sure. So growing up. I read a lot, um, especially in, in middle school and high school. And aside from the, the military influences in my life, like in person, uh, all the books that I were reading were Vietnam era books. They were 
you know, books about Navy SEALs and special forces operators and all of these just incredible, incredible stories of, of sacrifice and courage and um, almost to the point where, you know, as a, as a kid, you don't necessarily understand the reality behind those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but you remember uh, just how they make you feel and, and they, they kind of drive you to want to be like that in, in whatever way. So I, I, I was so committed to this, this concept of serving in the military. I mean, that's the core of why I pursued West Point, the United States Military Academy at West Point. You know, I kind of figured it'd be grounded in military training. And what's, what's interesting is it, it, that was really the least of it. You know, West Point focuses predominantly on academics, which are Harvard, Princeton level Ivy League academics. You're also evaluated on your, your physical fitness, right? Which are the two primaries. But military is actually the smallest component of it. Hmm. Uh, and and the, the reason for that is the academy uh, is, is adamant about teaching officers how to think, not what to think. Oh, wow. Right. And, and they, they do that using a very unique academic method uh, that was developed by West Point's founder, Colonel Sylvanus Thayer. Um, and it's called the Thayer Method. And what they do is, you know, at the academy, you have to you have to read the material of the lesson beforehand. You walk in through the door and are tested on it immediately, and then the instructor teaches you the material. Fascinating, right? And what that does, even though you feel like you're going crazy while you're while you're there, <laughs> but yeah. four four years of doing that. Uh, you know, you're talking about very, sometimes it's very complex material like calculus and physics and, and statistics. And, and, you know, you're trying to teach yourself these very, very complex concepts on your own. Uh, but what it teaches you to do is it teaches you how to pick up a manual and learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it teaches you how to innovate and figure things out mm-hmm. and get it done. Mm-hmm. And although you don't understand that completely while you're there, Years after you graduate, when you're in a very complex counterinsurgency environment in the middle of Baghdad, and you have to figure things out, you're well positioned to do it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, so I, so I didn't expect the academic onslaught that uh, <laughs> came, you know, and it, it was it was tougher, I think, for all of us to get through that, but uh, very important. In terms of the mindset, though, there is a very noticeable shift in the Corps of Cadets when 9-11 happened. Hmm. A new level of seriousness set in. It was at that point, and the way the academy works is you're actually not fully committed your freshman year. Hmm. You have to take what's called an oath of reaffirmation at the very beginning of your sophomore year. Hmm. Uh, So the first year is kind of a freebie. The second year, though, when you sign on that dotted line, you're committing to at least five years of active duty service and eight years of reserve time uh, mm-hmm. at a minimum uh, after graduation. Uh, and in our case, we were the first class in, in quite a long time and decades to actually sign uh, that document, knowing that we were going into war, uh, which is which is why we're considered the, the class of 9-11. Not only were we expected to to lead, you know, lead as officers in the in the in the a peacetime military at that point, like we, we knew we were going in with the weight of the responsibility that, you know, we, we were being charged with the responsibility of leading men and women into combat as well. So everything took on a new serious tone. Mm-hmm. And, and for me personally, for a lot of my classmates as well, it really took everything I had to stay at the academy uh, and not drop out and 
enlist and 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 join that war effort downrange immediately immediately yeah. uh and that was a, that was a struggle an internal battle that i fought every day mm-hmm. you know one of my best friends from high school was killed when mm-hmm. i was a, a senior at the academy and i was literally writing a history report mm-hmm. every couple of weeks another name would be announced uh, of a cadet who graduated went off and was unfortunately killed in in combat and just the the anxiety associated with wanting to be over there with them, wanting to be part of that main effort, really almost like it was it was very frustrating to be at the academy to say the least. And I, I almost dropped out many times, mm. um, and to the point where even even graduation, like it didn't feel like an accomplishment. Mm. You know, I mean, certainly it didn't in some respects, but it was more like a throw the hat in the air. That's a check the block. Let's get to Fort Benning and get going. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause that's, that's what, that's what really mattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you, you end up get, you know, going through that whole experience, you know, that you're going to lead men and women into battle. And then in, in what year, so you graduated in 05 and then you were in Iraq in the next year, right? Uh, close to that. Yeah. There, there was about a year of infantry specific training, okay. uh, cause I was an infantry officer. So a, a year of, of training at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, and then I joined my my new unit, and we were off to Baghdad within about three months. And so. in the most one of the most intense periods of of the entire Iraq War, right. and the, with the whole encounter insurgency, and you know, you get there, you recognize, you meet your team. What was that like? Like, what was that like meeting your team, getting to know these men and women that you were going to lead, and put in harm's way? Uh, so. And I, I love talking about this because it's not something I normally talk about much. Um, but, you know, going back to Sergeant Major Doug Vanderpool, um, the night of graduation from West Point, we were uh, having a drink at a, a local bar, just one-on-one, kind of reflecting. And he looked at me and said, you know, when you meet your platoon, the first thing to say is, I know nothing, you yeah. know. And, you know, just obviously he was saying that with a grain of salt, but the point is I had been shaped by people like him in terms of, uh, just a a leadership standpoint, right. That the, the humility necessary to gain trust with the team is absolutely essential. And you go into a team like that, learning from them, not trying to push them around with rank, you know, and, and that was a concept that was deeply internalized with me already. So when I got to the platoon, I, I met, um, I was first greeted by the commander of the units, the company commander, and his name was Jeff Morris. Uh, one of the best men that I know, hands down, and still a, a very, very close friend. Uh, but Jeff was kind of sizing me up at, at, at first before he actually gave me this unit, uh, because he had served with them in combat before. And what was very rare about this opportunity is you know, normally after a military deployment to combat, after that unit comes back, they tend to disperse uh, all over the country. They they go to different assignments, or they go to school, or they or they do whatever. So it's very rare that you get a a unit that stays organic deployment mm-hmm. to deployment. But in my case, that happened. Mm. the The unit that I was about to uh, take over. Uh, was served together just a year prior in one of the, again, one of the most intense areas of Baghdad. It, it, incredible, incredible stories. And 
he looked at me and said, you're about to take over the best men that I know, <laughs> you know, like literally the best soldiers and the best men that I know. And he wasn't exaggerating. I mean, those folks are the absolute best men that I know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we joke around the, the call signs of that unit was rage, chaos, and disorder. <laughs> right. So of course, that's why I got the tattoo yeah, like, yeah. right away. How can you not get a tattoo yeah, yeah, when you're right. this young infantry guy? Right. So rage, chaos, and disorder, right? And um, so again, it 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 kind of uh, that most people would think towards an aggressive nature of those names, but I mean that that's not the case. I mean they they were general giants, they were quiet professionals, they were people who were were absolute uh, experts in their craft and had the capacity to turn that on in in a, in a split second if needed. Um, but but they were just highly, highly mature, uh, were, were, were just phenomenal people uh, across the board, mm. you know, and, and these were call signs that were born in blood. I mean, just to give you an idea in that, in that deployment prior, like rage, for example, mm -hmm. got his nickname, uh, or got his call sign because an insurgent threw a grenade that landed about five feet from him and, and blew up peppering his entire body with shrapnel. Right. And, and it rage gets back up chases down the insurgent, kills him, and then seeks medical attention, <laughs> you know, and that's rage, yeah. right? And, but it's, it's just people like that, that I've encountered just, it's, it just continues to inspire me every day. Mm -hmm. So to have the privilege to lead a unit like that, you know, remember you're coming in as a, a young Lieutenant, you have sort of foundational concepts that you've garnered from your upbringing, from the, from West Point, um, but that's just the starting point, mm -hmm. you know, that, that is the starting point to, to learn from the team, uh, with the number one of objective of establishing trust mm -hmm. first and foremost. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more based in Oklahoma. They work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur holds you to call. If you're interested in playing a small role and having a game-changing impact in the lives of others, then I want to encourage you to head over to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash join. And there are a few ways that you can help the cause. So again, that is theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash join. And you can join the movement in helping me have a game-changing impact in the lives of others through the Impact Entrepreneur platform. Now back to the show. And so how long were you there before you went out on the deployment where you guys encountered the sniper? So that was uh, probably six or eight months, okay. something like that. Um, you had been promoted to captain at that time? Not yet. Not yet. Not okay. yet. Yeah, but I was, I think I was a first lieutenant at the okay. time that I got shot. Okay. So you're out on patrol, just a normal patrol? Yeah, well, sort of. Uh, so because I majored in Arabic at, at the academy, 
And I, I kind of, I did that intentionally, really, because I knew the importance of language. Going back to Doug Vanderpool again, right? Um, and and, truly, and language, like truly, powerful weapon. Uh, mm, absolutely, you know, and, power of words for sure. Right. Even though I majored in Arabic, is a ridiculous language. It, it, it's it's extremely complex, and it takes years and years and years to even come close to mastering. But just the even basic fluency in the language uh, allowed me to turn hostile looks into smiles just in the snap of a finger. Mm. You know, just demonstrating that cultural respect mm -hmm. uh, that they weren't used to. So uh, part of a reason, or, or, or tied to that, because of that ability, we, we were kind of tied to the local Iraqi police force. Um, and one of our objectives was to build that force up you know, they were, they were, they were not effective at all. <laughs> when we got there, they were heavily infiltrated by insurgents. They uh, were minimally resourced. Uh, so there was a long way to go. And, uh, we were tied to them. We were building up, uh, some, some great relationships and great rapport. And I, I spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one in the Iraqi police chief's office, just talking in Arabic and smoking cigarettes, you know, <laughs> but at, at one point, uh, you know, it, in that environment, especially, it becomes very important that the local national force, the police forces of their own country, take over the responsibility of those those missions. Mm -hmm. and, and and we ideally become the support force mm -hmm. and then gradually fade back into the shadows altogether. Uh, so I was doing a lot to try to get them to take the lead mm -hmm. uh, of, of these missions. And that day we were basically running a humanitarian mission uh, that was close to uh, an area called Sadr City. And that mission went without a hitch. You know, we delivered some school supplies and some clothes to uh, an area of the community that really needed it. Um, I had the Iraqi police with me. They did a great job. Uh, we escorted them back to their compound and, and kind of on the way back, we got diverted to another part of the sector uh, where I believe a, a rocket propelled grenade was fired at an American unit. And we needed to go investigate that immediately uh, to see if we could try to pin down where that 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 fire came from. And basically, while we were over there, we we noticed a very suspicious vehicle driving around very slowly, as if they were trying to videotape us and use it as propaganda or something. Uh, so I stopped them, and uh, myself and Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper, my senior uh, senior scout in that platoon. We're questioning the driver, and I, I looked in the back seat and saw what was probably a five thousand dollar video camera sitting in the back seat, and I was questioning the driver in Arabic, uh, trying to get like a playback function uh, to see if he was in fact recording us, mm. and uh, that's basically when uh, we were engaged by an enemy sniper when mm. we were fixed into that position. Mm -hmm. The bullets uh, first ripped through the aorta of Staff Sergeant Harper, and then ricocheted into my thigh and severed my femoral artery. Mm. At first, I, I didn't know that I was shot. You know, you, you experience this, this, uh, this wave of uh, physiological symptoms that are just bizarre. And if you've, if you've never read the book uh, On Killing by Dave Grossman, Colonel Dave Grossman, mm -hmm. it's, it's a phenomenal book that really, uh, I experienced what he highlighted in that book verbatim, uh, especially in the initial part of this injury, such as, so things such as slow motion time, fast motion time, uh, and auditory distortion. You know, I, I could, I could watch in crystal light clarity as Marlon's body just slowly fell to the ground. And then when I tried to drag him to safety, 
it's like that sense of slow motion time converted into a sense of fast motion time, right. you know, and he felt like a feather. Mm-hmm. Auditory distortion that I could only hear the muted sound of the sniper shot and my own voice calling for a medic. Mm. Um, so, so it's like the, the, I didn't know that I was shot at first. Uh, the, the, the initial impact kind of felt like being lifted up by one of these Santa Cruz ocean waves out here. If you're just mm-hmm. kind of standing in the surf, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of slow, you're sitting out on a surfboard and just kind of mm-hmm. slowly picks you up and mm-hmm. pulls you back down. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what it felt like at first. Um, but then that started to change, uh, within a couple of seconds, my medic arrived, uh, who was only 19 years old. And at that point in time, he had to make a choice between who he was going to try to save and who he was going to let die. Mm. Um, and he, he chose, uh, to ride with me, which from a medical standpoint, from a triage standpoint was absolutely the right decision, uh, because I had a slightly better chance of survival than did Marlon. But it's still that 19-year-old soldier who's going to live with the moral weight of that for the rest of his life, mm-hmm. right? Unfortunately, though, as I was being evacuated, uh, you know, and d- despite a, a, a just a brilliant evacuation process for my team, I, I could feel myself starting to die. And when you're dying of blood loss, you're essentially suffocating because hmm. the, the blood can't be delivered to the brain and the lungs and the vital organs, right? And your body will actually attempt to pull blood to the chest cavity in order to protect those vital organs. Mm. And I could actually feel that happening. You know, the, the blood would start to creep out of my legs and as all the blood left, they would cramp up and become numb. And then that would move through my quads and and they would become numb. And when the feeling hit my stomach, it, it was, it was a point where I knew the injury was getting out of control. At that point, it felt like I was running wind sprints around a 400-meter track and couldn't stop. Or like I was doing the hardest CrossFit workout you could think of, and for some reason, you cannot stop, hmm. right? That, it, was, it was purely this anaerobic pain, uh, no, no physical pain. Otherwise, it was, it, was, it was anaerobic. And then when that feeling hit my chest, um, I consciously knew that that was it. I, I, I took my last breath, I said my last thought, and I died. Hmm. I woke up about two days later in the green zone uh, to learn that I had flatlined for 15 minutes straight. Mm. But more importantly, uh, I learned that uh, while I had survived, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper did not. Mm. And I'd soon come to learn that the experience of dying would pale in comparison to the decade-long emotional struggle that I'd go through Mm. as I sought to find meaning in a second life. Yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine. It's a powerful story. Do you recall what your final thought was? I remember in distinct detail uh, the last few moments of my life. And it is a feeling, well, to answer your question directly, my very last thought was, please take care of them. It was really almost throwing up a silent prayer to take care of my family. Um, And what emerged maybe in in the minute or so before that last breath, I... And this came from nowhere. It, it wasn't intentional. Uh, and we we hear about, uh, in moments like this, life kind of flashes before our eyes uh, for, from others who maybe have been down that path before. Uh, I didn't experience that, but, but certainly I experienced an emergence of probably what was most important to me. Mm-hmm. And I started to repeat three names in my head, uh, and that was my mom and my two sisters, mm-hmm. rapidly for the last mm-hmm. minute of my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, so final thought was please take care of them. But the... That last breath, that last second or two at most, 
I remember very clearly. And it's a feeling that I can only describe as one of absolute and complete submission to something much greater than ourselves. Mm. Mm. And through that submission was an overwhelming sense of peace. Mm. Like every good, every bad, every positive, every negative, every doubt, every hope, it just vanishes. And the spirit becomes part of everything and nothing at the same time. Mm. So the moment of my death was the most peaceful experience of my life. Wow. And, and that is a concept that I'd struggle with quite a bit in years to come. Well, I would imagine, I mean, like, so you have this incredibly peaceful moment and then the next thing you know, you wake up in a hospital bed in Walter Reed, right? right? That had to be confusing and confounding. (laughs) It it was, so I, I, I woke up in the green zone uh, in Baghdad oh, still okay. about two days later. Okay. What was so strange about this, right? The, the A lot of bizarre things happened that day. And, and a lot of this is is part of the reason why I'm still propelled to carry this story now and, and consider it a responsibility because uh, it's helped people. So many, There's so many different threads of this story that is, have, have helped people in so many different ways. But the the, the medical standard when most physicians call it on a patient who has flatlined, like the, the point at which they, they, they're willing to, to call it is usually around the six or seven minute mark. And, and that's because that's the point where catastrophic brain damage starts to set in. Mm-hmm. My medical team went for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. like double the, the standard. And it was, it, it was, so even if they, even if the off chance, the miracle of a chance that they got a pulse back, they expected catastrophic brain damage if I woke up. And when I woke up, I had no trace of it. Mm. I kept my leg. I had full recollection of the experience and of the event. You know, the defibrillator paddles that they used to save me uh, literally arrived at that small base that morning, and they had to take them out of the plastic to use them on me. You know, I was only 10 minutes from this trauma unit when the injury happened. So, I mean, there are so many factors here that were just, Wow. Uh, came into play to kind of make this happen that, yeah, it was a little bizarre when I, when I woke up, you know, I, I kind of joke around because I consciously knew that I was dying. I knew that that was it. Right. And I, it it was a complete acceptance of it. Like I said, there was no fear. There was no, um, no reservation of that because there's, there's literally, it's, it's almost hard to communicate how this is because you literally do not have a choice. And, and, and in taking that choice away, in, in completely submitting uh, to, to that experience was just so profound that nothing else in life truly mattered. You know, mm. you're, you're part of something so much bigger and mm. so much more powerful. Mm. But I don't know. I, I joke around because there is when I did regain consciousness, like it was kind of fuzzy at first. And, and standing above me was literally this, this, uh, blonde figure, right? Dressed in white. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, okay, what is this? Some kind of angel. And it turns out to be the nurse. You know? <laughs> so, so she's an like, angel of sorts. Yeah. You know, an angel of sorts. Right. And, uh, she, she, you know, again, expecting catastrophic brain damage. She, she says, hi, I'm like, hi, <laughs> she goes, can you, can you tell me your name? It's like, yeah, Josh Montz, you know, now mind you, I was drugged up on methadone, morphine and Percocet. Uh, I was, so my words were a little slurred, but they were accurate. And she said, do you know, do you know where you are? And I told her the name of the base that I was evacuated to, Mm. which is the place that I died Mm. and her jaw dropped to the floor. 
Mm. And, and she said, no, you're in the green zone. I'll be right back. And she ran off to get the surgeon because wow. she couldn't believe it. Wow. Um, you know, and within a couple hours, I was uh, on a Black Hawk to the next phase of the, the medical evacuation process. So I uh, hit another follow-up surgery in Baghdad and then one in, in Germany and then, uh, you know, the, the flight back to Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Yeah, that's that's a, a powerful story. And one of the things, one of the words that you mentioned there is is choice. Like you have no choice but to submit to this death, right? Right. And then you you wake up and now ultimately you're faced with a new choice, right? Because now you're you're alive. Right. And and you've had this this new life thrust upon you. Right. Right. After you've just submitted to this peaceful thing, and now you're like, what? And I remember when we first connected, I read to you this quote from Shakespeare, which is, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. Right, right. And I, I still get, I get goosebumps whenever I read that. And I get goosebumps in particular reading that quote in front of you because you definitely had greatness thrust upon you and and your unit had greatness thrust upon them because they were called to do some incredible things in the midst of having their two leaders two two their their primary leader and one of their uh, lead you know non-commissioned leaders taken off right, you know right. right right away and and you're faced with this choice and there's there's and that's a very powerful word you talked about language earlier well i interviewed Lou Holtz a while back who's the famous head coach of the University of Notre Dame football team right. from a long time ago. And he said, I asked him a question about, I forget exactly what the question was, but his response, what I'll never forget. He said, Mike, there's, there's approximately 422,000 words in the English vocabulary. And the most important word among them is choice. Wow. So your new mission, you didn't know it necessarily at that time, but your new mission, you wake up, you're faced with a choice and you choose, maybe not initially, maybe you could take us to, through that part of the story, but your new mission is to help raise awareness and bring to light all of the emotional trauma that not only the people that are wounded face, but even more importantly, from what I've heard from you, the people that aren't wounded, right. like physically, Yep. But the, but the guys in your unit who sick? Who had to put on, put on their gear, finish that patrol, and then six hours later have to go get the sniper? So, at what point did you realize you made a choice that I'm going to take this and pay this forward? The answer might surprise you. It took almost a decade. Wow. Okay. And it took a lot of suicidal spirals, uh, bouts with depression, uh, and a lot of other dangerous pitfalls along the way to uncover that, mm -hmm. uh, like truly, truly and inherently uncover that. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, can I interrupt you real yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah, please. So, cause, but the, even before that, right? So even before that though, the army saw, put you out talking about it, right? True. Yep. So was that, was that Yeah. in hindsight, was that hard? No. no? I, I, and this, this is, uh, this is so important for just the, the, to understand the complexity of this, of this whole thing, right? Trauma isn't always what it seems. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did. I went back to Baghdad four and a half months after this injury. 
You know, I was literally pulling staples out of my leg with a, a Leatherman <laughs> multi-tool. <laughs> I was uh, pulling things out of my medical records so I could skate getting back down range. Um, you know, I, there was nothing, nothing that was going to stop me from getting back to my men. Mm -hmm. I, I talked about flying back, um, you know, on the medical evacuation flight. And it wasn't like on that flight that every minute was a minute closer to home. It was a minute farther away from the men. Mm. And, and this isn't something that's just me, right? This is very common mentality of, of anyone who's sitting in that hospital mm -hmm. or anyone in the service. You know, there is this insatiable urge to be with your team mm -hmm. in that uh, just extremely dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. And the, the level of guilt over that, regardless of the injury that I experienced, regardless, and I know none of them would look at me like this. Nobody in my life would look at me like this, but that guilt is very internal. As I was going through this just deep healing process, more so than anything over the last two years, right? Over mm -hmm. the process of writing this book, the mm -hmm. deep work of doing that, I, I really had to ask the hardest questions, uh, you know, if, if something didn't feel right, I, I stayed with it until I could understand it and express it into words, right? Mm -hmm. That could hopefully benefit other people too. And as, as a quick vignette for that, you know, I had so many people, really everyone in my life, and I can understand why, uh, look at the isolated experience of getting shot, dying, coming back to life, right? This, this near death experience in isolation as like the holy grail of trauma. You know, and I can see why, right? I'm not negating that. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of a hard thing for a lot of people to to like be able to directly compare to. Um, but the point is, it it took me almost ten years to give myself permission to uh, to admit that it it wasn't that experience in isolation that was the most challenging to navigate. It, it was everything before. It was everything afterwards that was much harder. Mm. Um, and and what I mean by that is when I was at Walter Reed. Uh, in recovery, the, the the medical care that I received there was phenomenal. There, uh, nowhere else I'd rather be in the world. But emotionally, it's a very difficult place to be because you're surrounded by some of the worst injuries you can fathom, you know, amputees and burn victims and the impacts that that has on the family members that are with them. And the image that I will never forget is I remember walking around a corner, seeing this beautiful young a uh, blonde girl in her early 20s pushing around her new double amputee fiance in a wheelchair, mm. you know, and, and and that image just riveted me because somehow I had survived this impossible injury, you know, and I was one of the few at that, at that entire hospital that was expected to make a full recovery, mm. you know, so what drove me to go back to Baghdad so fast wasn't just guilt being away from my men, you know, it was guilt in my ability to heal mm. when others couldn't. Mm. And it, it, it might seem like I'm to some, it might seem like I'm splitting hairs there. Like, isn't guilt guilt? Well, no, when it comes to the resolution of trauma, um, it's incredibly important to, uh, do the forensic investigation to piece that sequence of events back together in context so we can take an objective look at it and really try to pin down where that guilt lies, where that shame lies, so we can begin to evaluate it and relinquish it, mm -hmm. right? Moving mm -hmm. forward. And that, that, mm -hmm. you know, so, so there's trauma is not always what it seems. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, 
it has to be viewed as a very personal thing, a self-exploratory thing uh, mm -hmm. that can definitely be enhanced by the perspectives uh, of those around us. Mm. You know, but but I guess in in the end, my pitfall was because I was so reliant on others kind of viewing this experience because I was held in the limelight and the, and I, I I had become this like testament of resilience, mm -hmm. you know, national media. I was all over the place. I was like the face of, of right. what CNN, resilience looked like, CNN, all, all stuff, that yeah. stuff. Right. Yet I still failed to recognize the symptoms, the deeper symptoms within myself. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was inadvertently uh, and unknowingly hiding, hiding behind the shield of that story, mm. uh, which allowed me to divert from uncovering the deeper aspects of that trauma, mm -hmm. which was re definitely related to shame, powerlessness, betrayal, guilt, and the deeper moral and spiritual wounds that I, I believe are the crux of yeah. all of this. Yeah. So I, I actually, I want to interrupt you for a second because I actually noticed that um, in, in preparing for our conversation today, I watched several different interviews. Really? Huh. I watched your interview that you did on CNN like early on yeah and then juxtapose that against basically this like almost the same storyline right um in your TED talk that you did in 2013 right was that 2013 right. I think it was 14 something like Four, that something yeah, like it was that. a couple years ago yeah yeah a couple years ago and in one situation it, the experience happened to you but I didn't quite this is just my observation yep. so I could be totally off the experience happened to you, but you didn't own it. Right. Mm -hmm. And and then in the TED Talk, this is not only did the experience happen to you, but it is who you are and even to a certain degree who, who you are meant to be and are becoming. Right. And it was a really profound, as somebody who was preparing, it was a it it was it gave me the the goosebumps because I saw I was able to see this progression, you know, to a certain right. degree of of healing, you know. I know that you that you said that it didn't necessarily happen until you know it took a decade, which I can only imagine, right? So, because standing in front of experiencing that and then going back to your men and completing the tour of duty there, which had to be a completely different experience than the first time, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, I would imagine you could talk about that if you want to. And then the army asking you to step up and be the spokesperson. I mean, talk about a whirlwind. You know, really insightful that you picked up on that because very few do. And it actually kind of helps me that you saw that because it, it's, you know, I've had very, very few people even back then who would, who were able to pick up on that. I, I don't even tell people to watch those earlier interviews, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not that I was attempting to suppress anything or I was... Uh, like everything that I was saying was true. It was accurate. And it was, it was in a lot of ways helping a lot of different people yeah. somehow. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but at, at the same time, you know, I was, I was also aside from, from the media, I, I was also briefing at behavioral health conferences. You know, I was giving talks in front of clinicians. I was spending a lot of time immersed within even the behavioral health field Right. And, and still did not pick up on this. You know, it, it, the, the, a lot of that is because we, we tended to, as a society, oversimplify this concept of post-traumatic stress. You know, many people think those, and this is, these symptoms are certainly prevalent in the lives of some, um, but kind of the more obvious symptoms that we might point to are 
like uh, anxiety, jumpiness at loud noises, nightmares, night sweats, anger outbursts, right? All that stuff. I had none of it, right? None more of those physiological symptoms. Mm-hmm. What I was experiencing, though, was something much, much deeper, a, a, a deep, dark emotional void that I couldn't even begin to understand or recognize at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, 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 I was an open book. I mean, I wasn't trying to suppress anything, but like so many of the people I've encountered since then, right? So yeah. many people that I work with now, there's almost an internal barrier uh, to communicating those things because they're so complex. We don't have the language. We don't have the words to express them, right? And that's part of my uh, my, my, my responsibility now is is helping people to first uncover and validate the true source of their pain and and, and hopefully give them a language to be able to uh, express it in a way that's productive. Actually, what you brought up, it's almost, it, it might actually be a good bit of a case study to, to kind of look at the, the previous interviews and the current ones in that context, right? Mm-hmm. And because it is kind of blatantly obvious when you, when you, when, look you at when you look at them side by side. Yep. yep. And it's not, it's, if I had to put something up this way from my observation, it's like in, in interview A, you didn't believe it, it happened to you. I mean, still, like there's, I mean, it did happen, but there's like this. It's almost like this regurgitation of a. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, there's like a veil, right? right? Yeah. But then in, in your TED talk, I mean, there is no veil, dude. I mean, your, yep. your heart yep. <laughs> is just opened up. I mean, there's no thing you're, you know, and, and all formality and everything is, is removed. Right. right? And you said it took you 10 years before you were able to make the choice to pay this forward. What was the moment? Was there a moment that like, so yeah. So, so that 10 year, uh, statement is a progression over that 10 years, right? The the first, the first time that door really opened is the first time I found myself in a suicidal spiral, a very deep one. And I was in Washington DC at the time, fortunately, somehow had the strength uh, to call one of my closest friends. And he was able to connect me with one of the top clinicians in the Department of Defense the very next morning Mm -hmm. who dropped everything on her calendar and talked to me for four hours straight, Mm -hmm. telling me things that I've never heard before or never considered, right? Mm -hmm. And, And she was the first who really introduced me to the concept of moral and ethical wounds Hmm. Right. Not in the sense that you necessarily did something wrong mm-hmm. um, or did something bad to someone else, but the the power of shame and guilt and betrayal and powerlessness and abandonment. Right. Those deep seated wounds can can really, um, you know, adhere directly to the definition of trauma, which is an experience or an event that fundamentally alters the way we believe the world should work. Mm-hmm. And when we can't resolve that, it can fundamentally start to shake the foundation of, of who we believe we are, right? Uh, so if we're not operating at a moral and spiritual level as we view our lives, you know, and that applies to any context, to any person, because trauma doesn't discriminate, it comes mm. in many shapes mm-hmm. and forms. Mm-hmm. We have to be looking at it through that spiritual and moral lens. Mm. Even despite the state that I was in, and this was back in 2010, right in the middle of the speaking circuit, you know, the, the therapist really strongly encouraged me as a good therapist should 
Josh, you know, I think you should slow down on the speaking circuit. Just work on yourself for a little while. It's important, you know, and I, I got that, <laughs> but I told her right then and there, I, I, her, her name was Vic. And I, I said, Vic, you know, I have been the figurehead for this, that people I've been looking up to. I've been communicating this message, which was only now I see was only like half effective in mm -hmm. my mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Might've been helping some people, but if I miss this, I need to get this message about moral and spiritual wounds out now. You know, mm -hmm. I need, I need people to understand the impacts of emotional withdrawal now, because look at the suicide problem we're facing. Look at the divorce rates that we're facing. Like, and as, as the officer, right. As the leader of people, you know, I'm, we, we truly take on this just incredible weight and incredible responsibility that we are responsible for everything our unit does or fails to do, you know? And so within two weeks, I was back on the speaking circuit. <laughs> you yeah, know? Just like we were talking about with my dad before uh, we started the, hit the record button initiative. You were like, I got to do this right now. Yeah. 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 It, wow. it was. And, and it was, it was truly in a, uh, this, this again, not, intentionally doing this. It wasn't like a bravado thing or it wasn't, uh, it wasn't about me. It was a self-sacrificial thing to try to help, yeah. you know, and, and probably propelled in a lot of ways by the same guilt that drove me to go back to Baghdad that I hadn't processed yet. But the, the, that was, it, it was a starting point to true healing, to true recovery. Right. And, and from that point on, I mean, there was still hundreds of more talks to come. There was a lot of great things that would happen. There was a lot of extremely damaging and dangerous things that would happen. Um, I, you know, I, about two years later, when I took command of a, basically a behavioral health unit in the military, I, I didn't stop working. You know, I was going through a massive flare up of Crohn's disease. And even in that, you know, even when I was, I had lost 30 pounds, I was on a maximum dose of prednisone and still losing that weight for a year straight. Um, I was so weak that I'd, I'd nudge my medic to give me IVs mm. uh, over lunch so I could keep going. Mm. You know, I was living off of Insure Plus. Uh, you know, I was in command. I was on the national speaking circuit. I was working for a national nonprofit. You know, I was driving myself into the ground, mm -hmm. right? A and that period of my life ended with a divorce and it ended with a career-ending surgery. Mm. And th the even though that fundamental moment with that therapist uh, was the gateway to the healing process, I'd have to go through a lot of pitfalls and a lot more deep, deep work before I would, I would really pin down uh, the truth behind mm -hmm. trauma um, and derive meaning in that suffering. Mm -hmm. I, and this might be very appropriate for, for your audience, especially, you know, because entrepreneurs, like we have a tendency to work a lot. We're fiercely committed to what we do. Right. And, and there's a lot of passion behind it because I had so much unresolved trauma. I was, uh, addicted to work. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was, I was that, uh, and again, not intentionally, uh, I wasn't cognizant of it at the time. I can see it in retrospect, but I was, uh, avoiding in many ways, processing my own stuff because I kept myself so incredibly busy, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and all that turned into was me being so incredibly unhealthy and dangerous. You mm -hmm. know? I love that you said two things there. One that you said trauma doesn't discriminate because, you know, people listening right now might think, well, this is just, we're just talking about the military here. Not and, at all. And, and, and we're not, we're yeah. talking about 
we're talking, and you, then you mentioned entrepreneurs, which you know most of my audience is, and I myself and you are an entrepreneur also, and we have different types of trauma, you know, failure, deals gone sideways, relationships broken, and and those are all things that you know take notches out of our heart and 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 leave scars. Yes. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week as we continue our conversation with Josh Montz. But in the meantime, if you want to go back and look at the show notes, head to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 82 for all of the key points and, and highlights of my conversation for part one of my conversation with Josh. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lawton Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. And until next time, go make an impact. And stay tuned for part two with Josh next week.